You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 10, episode 7. Before we get started on today's episode, I want to let you know that submissions for the third annual Bright Wings Poetry Contest, conducted in partnership with Ecstasis Magazine, are now open for submissions through November 25th. Follow the show notes of this episode or visit makersandmystics.com to learn more. One final note before we begin. This episode contains sensitive content that may be best for a mature listening audience. Okay, my friends, today on the podcast, we're going to take a little road trip together up the hills to the beautiful mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. And in this episode, I have the honor of introducing you to the work of Dr. Michael Hayes. Michael Hayes is the founder and executive director of the Umoja Health, Wellness, and Justice Collective. He is a visionary agent of change who has found powerful ways to infuse the art of storytelling and the science of resilience into opportunities for healing and recovery. Michael Hayes is the author of the HOPE module, Healing Our Past Personal Experiences. He's a certified peer support specialist, a wellness recovery action plan facilitator, and a reconnect for resilience skills educator. Michael Hayes is also the founder of the Urban Arts Institute and continues to provide opportunities for healing and growth grounded in the arts. In this episode, Michael and I talk about his work with the Moja and how the arts play a vital role in the healing and recovery of the students he works with. Thank you so much for listening. This is my interview with Dr. Michael Hayes. Well, I'm sitting here in the beautiful mountains of North Carolina in Asheville. And uh, man, what a treat to be able to do this interview in person. I've got the one and only Michael Hayes here with me on Makers and Mystics Uh. podcast. (laughs) And today we're going to be talking about resiliency and the arts. And our listeners know that this season we've been focusing on restoration for the heart of the artist. And this work that you're doing, man, this incredible work you're doing up here <laughs> fits right into our narrative of restoration. So thanks, Steven. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. So so <laughs> glad to have you here. Why don't we start by just explain a little bit to us about what resiliency is and how you would define that as it pertains to your work. Okay. Well, my name is Michael Hayes. I am a trauma and resiliency educator. Uh, you know, I'm a community health worker, peer support specialist, all of that. But uh, this trauma and resiliency work that I do is my passion. Uh, to understand what resiliency looks like, we have to understand what trauma looks like because most people aren't aware that they've been traumatized. And trauma is something that happens. Uh, uh, it's immediate. You didn't ask for it. And it has a negative impact Oh, not only maybe your life, but also your your trauma response system, your nervous system, right? So you can be easily triggered by things and you can't put a context to it. And it probably can be directly correlated to the trauma that you've been through Mm -hmm. sometime in your life. And it could be as early as one or two years old. And then it could show up later on down the line with, you know, with triggers that might happen. So the resiliency part is really big because the resiliency part is the ability to bounce back. That's all resiliency is, the ability to bounce back from trauma, the ability to bounce back from uh, things that have negatively impacted your life, just the ability to bounce back. 
Mm. It's as simple as that. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. And so you work with a lot of young adults, yes. children, as yes. well as uh, those coming out of the prison system mm-hmm. back into society. Tell me more about that work. Oh, man. So the work that we do, <laughs> man, we are a community-based organization. Uh, it's your Moja Health Wellness and Justice Collective. Uh, where our mission is creating community through connection and culture. And we're talking about a culture of resilience, a culture of not asking what's wrong with you, but a culture of asking what happened. Mm. Not what happened immediately before you got in trouble, but what happened way before that that had you triggered to respond the way you did. So we have a lot of different programs, uh, but one of the biggest programs that we have, man, is the Hope for the Future program, which is healing. Hope is always this, healing our past experiences mm-hmm. or healing our personal experiences, but it's hope. So our Hope for the Future program is for, uh, you know, we started out with middle schoolers, and then we uh, incorporate our elementary school students, and we have them now as young as five years old to as old as 18. Mm-hmm. And that's our Hope for the Future program. But then we have Foundations for Healing, which is for domestic violence uh, offenders. We have Rebuilding for Healing, which is for domestic violence survivors. Uh, we have trauma-informed workers that's working with the community paramedics to go out in the in the uh, communities and, you know, work with those who are in the midst of addiction or that are seeking recovery. We have programs that work with those who are, you know, coming out of incarceration uh, well, we provide resources. Uh, we're in partnerships with a lot of different organizations, specifically those who work with commun- inside the community. So, um, yeah, the work that we do is all centered around being trauma-informed, mm-hmm. resiliency-focused, and specifically culturally aligned. Because we can talk equity and, and when we talk of mental health services, but you really can't talk equity until it's equitable for everyone when we mm-hmm. talk. Because mental health services, sometimes it doesn't look like going to a, a, a provider or going to see a counselor or psychiatrist. Sometimes it can start by having a conversation with somebody who has the same lived experiences as you might have had. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then that can start that path of recovery, of healing, mm-hmm. of like really, really like getting back to where we where we want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me how looking at the trauma of the past can help us to heal in the present and set us up to live a more whole life for the future? So, ooh, Stephen, that's a good (laughs) question. All right, so I think the best way I can articulate this is to share just a little bit of my story. All right, so from, at the age of eight is when I was probably more traumatized than any other time in my life. That's that's when uh, the uh, the realization of my mother and my father separating to get a divorce uh, really hit because we went from a, you know, a middle-class household to living in a seven of us living in a two-bedroom apartment, uh, struggling, my mother working two jobs, um, seeing drug and alcohol use. Um, eight years old, I was uh, molested. Eight years old, I saw my first murder. Um, and that impacted me because, and it impacted me negatively because of this. Uh, first, I was told, don't talk about it. What, you know, what goes on in this house stays in this house. Uh, don't talk about it because I could be just. Don't talk about it. Pray about it. And then I was also told, uh, boys don't cry. And then I was told to man up. At eight years old, I was told to man up, be a man about it. So those abnormal cultural sayings was the biggest impact, and that's what made me suppress all my emotions. So I learned at eight years old to suppress my emotions. By the time I got to middle school, 12, 13 years old, all of those emotions started. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, so I got suspended from school for a few but then I started to rely on substances. That's when I, you know, had my 
first uh, puff of marijuana. That's when I had my first sip of alcohol. And that first sip of alcohol was really the thing because it made me feel like I forgot all those things that happened mm-hmm. for a minute, right? So I'm like, yo, I want to forget again. Right. So I drank again. So then that started my journey into substance misuse. The uh, There's a saying that we use with uh, resources for resiliency. Um, I'm a trauma-informed educator through resources for resiliency. And it says it's hard to get enough of something that almost works. <laughs> Wow. Because in our mind, yeah. it's working, right? Yo, right. I didn't I didn't think about that yesterday. Let me do this again today so I won't think about that trauma from the past. Now, at right. this time, when I really started to abuse, bro, I'm like 16, 17, 18 years old. I'm going to school after I drank a 40. That's almost every day for like two years of high school. Mm. And the thing that got me was when I started to realize, when I became aware at 48, that I was traumatized at that time from the stuff that happened at eight, I recognized there was always a trigger mm-hmm. that would make me go into the mode of wanting to use substances. It could be a slam door because I could recall the slam doors that happened when my mother and father used to, you know, be in the domestic disputes, and we would we could tell by the way the doors cl- uh, uh, closed if he was in a good mood or a bad mood. Wow! If the door slammed a certain way. All six of my, my my other five brothers and sisters, we're running to the bedroom getting under the covers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If it closed a different way, oh, he must might be in a good mood. So those things are really, really true. And I didn't know that this was a my threat response, my, my safety threat response system telling me mm-hmm. to be safe, fight or flight. It's time to flight. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. So 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 becoming aware of those things uh, uh made me understand how I have to start on uh, being aware of my triggers. But that didn't happen to me until 48. That's why we do this work now, specifically with our young people, so that they can have this understanding. They can uh, be aware of those things. They can be aware of their triggers so that they can respond differently. Because right now, if they do it in school, it starts to become a behavior issue. Mm-hmm. You get enough issues about your behavior, they'll kick you out of school. But sometimes it's not behavior. Sometimes it's just the way mm-hmm. that the, 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 the threat response system is reacting. Yeah, You can't help that. Mm-hmm. So now that we're understanding that becoming more trauma informed within the school system and other systems, we're having better outcomes now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, in your story, you went on from that high school situation, and those trauma responses continued to get worse and worse. Is that right? Bro, I've been look, look, <laughs> Steven, look, just to keep it all the way real with you. Uh, yes, it got progressively wor- worse. Um, and it got worse because I started relying more and more on the substances just mm-hmm. to keep me connected. So I share this all the time. I wore a mask. I wore a facade of Michael Hayes mm-hmm. for 40 years. Wow. I wore the facade of Michael Hayes for 40 years. Everybody thought my life was good. Everybody thought, like, because I'm throwing shows, you know, I'm 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 famous, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a hip-hop artist. I'm throwing, like, I'm everywhere. I'm doing everything. Mm-hmm. But they don't know I'm intoxicated more times than not when I'm out in these public places. Mm-hmm. But then behind closed doors is when the real anger would show up. Those who love me most, I push them aside. My oldest son is in there now doing some editing. I didn't get to raise my oldest son. I didn't get a, I didn't have a, a relationship with my oldest son until he hit 19. When he got out of prison and I got out of prison the same day. Wow. And he'll tell you now he used to ask, why is it that I'm reacting different? Because, you know, his mother married a uh, uh, Floyd, great friend of mine, right? They got married. They had children, and their children are reacting differently to traumas and triggers than my son Taquan was. Mm-hmm. You know, he can tell you that to this day, and he was wondering why. 
So then I met him, we talked, we got closer, and then he started to see his characteristics from me. What The way I responded, he looking like, yo, I respond the same way. Mm-hmm. So this generational thing of being passed down. So me being absent from my older children's lives, me being, uh, oh my gosh, me being, me suppressing my emotions from younger, mm-hmm. and they kept kept rising, kept rising. It was me going back to the drugs, back to the alcohol, back to wearing the mask. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you could say then that when we suppress what traumatizes us in an attempt to heal from it on our own or when we suppress it because we're afraid or whatever, mm-hmm. we don't want to share it, mm-hmm. we've been told not to share it, it's going to come up sooner it's gonna or come later. Up. Suppressing it doesn't work, and I think we have to start recognizing that. Suppressing, telling a young, telling, teaching a young boy mm-hmm. that boys don't cry, you're teaching him to be unemotional. You're teaching him that he can't show emotion. He he suppresses it. But also teaching specifically black women, because I heard this to my sisters, black women have to be strong. Let's learn to suppress it. So then sooner or later, man, it is going to come up. Okay, so what happens when you blow air into a balloon for a long time? Mm-hmm. It's going to eventually pop. <laughs> right. That's what suppressing those emotions. You're going to keep pushing, 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 and eventually mm-hmm. you're going to pop. Yeah. Yeah. And so it it begins to inform how you respond in situations that have nothing to do with the trauma, mm-hmm. but you've got these unconscious triggers maybe even taking place there that yes, learn behaviors. So. Stephen, most people can't even put in context why they respond the way they do until they become aware of the fact that they've been traumatized somewhere down the line. Becoming aware is so important because society, you know, and it's not just, it's generational, but society teaches us some really bad things, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, that just keeps going back to boys don't cry. Like, yeah, that was for our safety for a moment, Mm -hmm. right? But then we start to pick that up as a learned behavior. Right. I'm not supposed to cry, so my behavior is I'm going to suppress it, but sooner or later— Mm-hmm. It's gotta come out. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So if we if you put some of that in spiritual terms or psychological terms, you might say a false self versus the true self. And mm. so in your life for many years, you wore that mask wow. of this false self. You're you're seated in your identity. Oh, I got this going on. Mm-hmm. The externals are kind of leading the way while inside Eat me up. Yeah. But I'm gonna tell you the only time I felt uh I felt and this is, this is going to sound crazy, but the only time I felt good about myself is when I was doing plays, mm-hmm. when I was uh, creating, when I was writing, when I was dancing, mm-hmm. because then I get to be me playing somebody else, right? Wow. So, like, man, I was a great actor. Like, I did a lot of plays, right? Wrote a lot of plays. And I would, you know, do these performances, man, and practice. I feel great. Creating the dances, I feel great. Mm. Like playing another, playing a character, I yeah. feel great. Yeah. After that, I can feel great for about two hours after that. But mm-hmm. eventually, I got to go back to the reality of who I really am. Wow. So let me throw the mask back on. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you bring up acting because when I've talked to other actors, one thing that they've said to me, and I don't know if this was for you too, but one of the things that helped them 
through the process of acting was because for a moment they could control what they're saying. They could control how they're acting. They know what to expect. They're not inside the chaos of themselves. Controlling that character. Right. And then you become that character because it's, it's, it's less chaotic as that character (laughs) than it is in my my own life. So, oh my gosh, that's, that's hitting the nail on the head. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you brought up the arts, so I want to lean into this a little okay. bit here because I know that a huge part of the programs you run here in Asheville involves the arts yes. and helping people in your program to address some of the trauma. Tell me how the arts play into what you do and how that's a tool for healing. Okay, so there's always this I- idea of what can I create that can be centered around me and what I'm feeling? What can what can I create to help me release some things that I'm feeling? Um, Tupac, hip-hop artist. If you read the lyrics to Shed So Many Tears, Tupac is not only talking about his generational trauma, his existing trauma, he's also talking about what he does for the healing aspect, right? Mm-hmm. Not going to go into the words, So, but <laughs> if you go into the words of it, right, and you'll see... What he's going through on a day-to-day basis, and he says, uh, until I got that thug life tatted on my chest, Timmy, can you feel me? He Mm. got that thug life tatted on his chest, and there was a healing component to him doing that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that, it wasn't like a beautiful graffiti type, it was just thug life written on his chest. And what that did was that empowered, that that gave him power over his healing. Mm -hmm. And it was art, and he put it in song form. Mm-hmm. So we have a studio, we have a dance studio, have a recording studio, we have this podcast studio, we have, we got a weight room, like we have, we have uh, uh, Beth Ivy, who was this, she's the, um, she does cl- clinical work with, she's a trauma informed clinician, right? So she does this clinical work, but she does it through the arts. Mm-hmm. This summer, our children got to partake in her program, and the pieces were so brilliant that we ended up putting them, we, we had a white party for our fundraiser, and we put a price tag on some of these paintings, and all of them sold, because these were our children expressing mm-hmm. what they're doing for their healing journey. It's one particular picture, it's two pictures, well, really one is by uh, this young man, uh, Josiah Jones, and um, it's the word hope at the bottom, but it is a, you can tell it's a black, it's a black man, and he has a tree growing out the middle of his head, right? Mm-hmm. And the backdrop of that tree is like Africa and like his heritage, right? Mm-hmm. But I asked him, I was like, what made you draw that? This kid was 12 years, twelve or 13 when he made this painting, right? He said, Mr. Hayes, it was everything that Hope did for me over the summer. It was like I got to grow and my mind got to grow. But if you look at the picture, there's no eyes. Mm-hmm. The eyes are the white canvas. He said, I didn't need to see it naturally. Wow. He said, I was seeing it here, right? And that's his art. He, man, the, it's beautiful. <laughs> so this opportunity for anyone to use their their creative gifts to create something is always going to be healing because it comes, every every artist will tell you, man, I created this from the inside of me, yeah. right? It's not from the outside right. of things. It is from the inside. It's either from a thought, mm-hmm. it's either from a mind, or it's, a feel, it's from a feeling, right? Mm-hmm. So, um. Yeah, it's and it's and I think about my life. It was healing for me, mm-hmm. so that's why it's important that we that we always utilize the arts and what we do, and especially when you're talking about 
young kids of color. Mm-hmm. We had this conversation yesterday. When you listen to the music that they listen to nowadays, a lot of us, like, I'm 55, so I'm like, man, all this cussing, <laughs> fussing, game banging, right? But if you like, so we have one young student, her name is Dee Dee. Her favorite artist is Rod Wave, and never listened to Rod Wave music. But she played this song called Abandon for me, and she's always singing this song, right? He's been abandoned his whole life. And every word of that song pertains to her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is her story. It's another, it's another artist, but it is her story. And she, and when you listen to the words, you can tell the trauma. You can hear the trauma that not only he's going through, but she relates to it because it's the same way she feels. She feels abandoned. Mm-hmm. So if we listen to the art that they listen to, or you know, and then we can like make a connection to it. Then we can start this healing process with it's we never we never give a child or anybody we work with because actually uh my son and uh, one of our other staff members they uh they wrote our theme song our theme music like two they have a, a healing song and a hope for the future song and if you listen to both of those both songs and their verses they share their trauma mm-hmm. so it's healing for them too Mm-hmm. So it's not just yeah, it's not just the kids, man. It's anybody that can really tap into that creative part and understand that they can, you know, use that to start healing because they're aware. So it's always about being aware of the trauma. We don't rest on the trauma, but we have to be aware of that first so the healing can start. And through the arts, that's the we found out that's one of the most effective ways to, mm-hmm. to use especially I was saying especially with our young people because they are they go through way more than I went through. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say some of the bigger challenges that you're facing in this work are today? I know we're, you know, two years out from 2020, the pandemic, and I know so many people that I've talked to on the, this podcast, uh, man, we've all kind of gone through our own collective trauma. I wonder uh, if you've experienced some of that with people or how that's played into your work and what some of your challenges are right now that you're seeing you know, when we say creating community, because we want everybody to become trauma-informed and resiliency-focused. We want, we want all those, we want the parents of our youth to be trauma-informed. We want the system to be trauma-informed, school system, justice systems, all the different systems. The thing that I run into most that, that, is, that is kind of a wall for me, well, for me, mm-hmm. is um, organizations using the term trauma-informed, and you're not. You're using the term trauma-informed just like, you know, people started using the term equity. Mm-hmm. Like equity is not equity is not me being behind for 400 years and then you give me the same thing as somebody who's had generational wealth. Equity is like giving me what I need to be caught up with those who have generational mm-hmm. wealth. Trauma informed is not you saying, okay, you uh you took a trauma informed training and you're gonna check the box. Trauma informed resiliency focus has to be live, right? Mm-hmm. So I run into organizations who want to use that term that don't really live that term, uh, the school system, they're supposed to be like trauma-informed, but you're really not because you trigger more children than you actually recognize. I will say this. I will give, I want to give a shout-out to uh, my man, Mr. Collins, at Irwin Middle School here in Asheville. He gets it. Mm-hmm. I get to go to Irwin Middle School and sit with a group of children in the morning just to get them what we call online, <laughs> just to get their system settled before they even start the school day. Mm-hmm. Do you know how powerful that can that is? You know how powerful a tool that is to allow someone, I'm not a teacher, I'm not an educator, I've been to prison, did all that, but you allow me to come in just to help reset. And we started out with two, now we got like 12 in the class, it's probably going to be 30 when I go back next week, but that's all good, <laughs> that's good. right? That's awesome. But it's it's uh, it's understanding that, so, you know, that's that's one of, yeah, yeah that's just one of the things, man, and, yeah. us, and really, man, it's... um. 
It used to be parents who will say, well, I didn't do that to my child. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't cause my child into trauma. And we have to understand that perception is reality. Mm. The traumatic perception of somebody is their reality. That's good. And we can't change that. That's good. Right? What we can do is listen to them. And even though we might not agree, we can say, you know what? That makes sense. Yeah. I don't have to say I understand. Yo, I get it. Yeah, no. Yo, you know what? That makes sense. And that leads to, uh, uh, number one, connection happening. And number two, it's like, okay, now I feel comfortable enough to keep talking. Like, People being able to sit in uncomfortable conversations, and we want to try to change that as well because being trauma-informed, understanding that we all have gone through something, and, and, and that part right there alone and being compassionate and empathetic for someone else because we understand like somebody else has a story too, mm-hmm. man, yeah, that allows us to sit with some uncomfortable conversations but understanding that it's needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's so good, man. You know, when we talk about trauma, we often... Think about, of course, the person who experienced it as as something that was done to them. But do you also encounter healing for the people that maybe caused the trauma that are willing to humble themselves and go through the process of restoration? What is that? What is that like for you? Hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. Most of the time when we deal with, I'm just going to take the uh, domestic violence for survivors and domestic violence for offenders. When the domestic violence for offenders training starts, the first thing we talk about is trauma, what it is, what it looks like. Have you been affected by trauma? Nine out of 10 will say, yeah, but you know, it really didn't mess with me none. Mm-hmm. What type of trauma have you been affected by? Now, this this the part that's going to get you. Well, uh, you know, I had sex with the babysitter when I was nine. Mm-hmm. What did your father say? Or what did your mother say? Most of them say, my father said it was great. Way to go. You're a man. Mm. At nine years old, 19 years old, you're, right. right? So, and that's just an example of it now. Sure. Okay, so you take that part of it. Now you're a man mm-hmm. at 19 years old. Sure. So now they start to feed into this false sense of what a man is supposed to be and what a man is supposed to do. Yeah. They keep, They don't, they ain't even gone through puberty, right? Mm-hmm. So then this, this uh, puberty's change, pu- puberty starts and you are trying to still grasp the hold of, why is it that you're nine and ten years old and you've had this sexual experience and you've never, you know, you stand in front of the class and all of a sudden you are, you know, you have a feeling and you're embarrassed because you have an erection, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. somebody says something and you get upset, so you start fighting. So now you're taught because of what you did, you have these body things happening and now you're fighting. As you get older, you hadn't had control of that yet, so you start taking that fight to everybody. I see. Even the pre- even the people that you're with, mm-hmm. so you might not recognize it as it being traumatizing. Mm-hmm. But what made you think you could put your hands on your significant other? Mm-hmm. Well, man, she was talking reckless. Oh, really? The same way somebody laughed at you when you had the erection, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. At ten years old, so you fought. So you didn't learn how to control those things. So then it's like a wow. But the best the best way I get them is I share my story. Yeah, I share my stories of domestic violence. I share my stories of why I was angry. I share all of that. And then most of the time, they can easily open up to understand, mm-hmm. and I have been traumatized. Yeah. Because a lot of us don't look at some of the things we went through as trauma because we still... This, hey, look, Stephen, you're going to trip on this. <laughs> Stephen, when I had... Okay, Taquana's my oldest. Then I had uh, DeMarcus and Mike. Mike married their mother. We was married for a while. We was together like 17. And um, I, <laughs> I taught, was teaching my sons, boys don't cry. Mm. 
I was teaching my sons, but the same craziness I grew up with. So I taught my sons to suppress those emotions, right? Mm -hmm. So now I've been trying to make up for that for the past eight years, you know? Mm -hmm. But now it's been instilled. But the beautiful part is I have younger boys. I get to see my sons, Mm -hmm. my grandchildren. And now we're trying to change that that generational curse of like boys yeah. don't cry. No, we're gonna stop that. That's right. We're gonna lift that in That's the blood now. So yeah. it's a, like I said, it's always about the awareness mm-hmm. and then like accepting that it really happened. Yeah. Right. That's why most hurt people hurt people. Right. Because they're not aware, they won't accept it. But once you accept it, once you become aware and accept it, then it's the accountability part. Now, how can I because accountability used to be a bad word. <laughs> what you mean? I do gonna hold me accountable. I don't need nobody. No, now you're accountable because now you know. Yeah. And most of the time when people know and they hold themselves accountable, man, I'm sorry. I apologize for that. I was over the, I stepped out of line. Mm-hmm. And that becomes a part of the healing journey because now we can start accepting ourselves for who we truly are. Yeah. 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 And so you've been, well, you've talked about this openly in public too. You've been on both sides of it in, oh gosh, in the trauma. Yeah. You've, you've done your own things. And, and I've and, heard other people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But being honest with your own story has enabled you to help other people go through their stories. And yeah. so I think that that honesty with our stories is something I'm learning in my own life, and I think something we're all learning. And on that note, I'd love to ask you one last question. And this is simply for those of us, for our listeners on the podcast, The most of them are artists, uh, people of faith, people pursuing these creative adventures. What are some things that you think that we can do to help unpack our own trauma and our own stories because we all can't come up here and live with you in Asheville, you know? Right. <laughs> we might need to, but... Uh, hey, you can give me a call, though. <laughs> you know, uh, what a, do you suggest? Oh, man, Stephen, I'm going to tell you, man. Even though the world looks like we are so divided, mm. if you look at from politics to culture mm-hmm. to race to old versus young, mm-hmm. right? It looks like we're so separated. But human beings are intuitively designed for connection. That's right. We are made for connection. If we get past that and if we start to understand that, that, Stephen, I can look at you, I can see you walking down the street, and I can say, you know what? Empathy and compassion is what is how I'm going to roll. I guarantee this man is probably going through something in his life as well. Mm -hmm. If we could just do that part, like stop looking at people like they're the enemy, Everybody is going through something. Understand, hurt people can hurt people. Mm-hmm. Everybody's going through something, but compassion yeah. and empathy Come can on. change the world. That's what's up. That's yes. It. So it, it really doesn't, black, white, old, young, Republican, <laughs> Democrat, it don't matter. Yeah. Human beings are intuitively designed for connection. Come on. Bro, look, I don't I've been <laughs> I've been in places where I get the rough looks like the ice grill of like who we think he is. <laughs> but I can say, hey, how you doing? And I guarantee your mirror neurons, that's thing that's in your brain that lets you know that you're safe, will automatically make you respond and either that growl will leave or you're smiling, you'll wave back like, hey, or you still might still have that growl. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> we designed for connection. Yeah. Yeah. That's how we, and we do that to survive, not just to survive, man, but we do that to thrive. That's right. We connect to thrive, bro. Yeah. Well, before we close, I'd like for you to share a bit about the seed project that we've both been partnering on with our friends in the Institute of Regenerative Design and Innovation. Tell our listeners what that is. Oh, man. So the seed project is really bringing organizations together to build a resilient community 
through soil, through growing food that are bio-nutrient foods. We know that there are food deserts. We know that there are so many places where that don't get healthy food. So the idea of the seed project, you know, it's like a seed has these, like in the little bitty seed, there's already a system that's in that seed that once it gets the water and the soil and all the good things that it needs, then it can start to grow out. The seed project is really about us understanding there's already a system that's built that, that includes resiliency, that includes health organizations uh, and providers, that includes restaurants, that includes those who are growing the food, farmers, that includes all of these different community-based people and organizations from rural areas to the inner city areas that are going to come together to build this resiliency model. And uh, it's really going to be powerful because it's really going to give people who are coming out of recovery uh, returning citizens from prison, young people, like it's going to give the whole community an opportunity to not only start eating healthier food, but be a part of this process of like resiliency through yes. this idea of growing food. That's good. And we'll be sure to put a link to the website Definitely. in the show notes of this episode so people can connect with you there. Yes. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on Makers <laughs> and Mystics today. Thank you for I having me, I can sit me, here brother. and talk with you for hours, man. This is great. We'll so, get a part two going soon. That's right. We'll do it. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to the Bright Wings Poetry Contest, the Emoja Collective, and to learn how you can support the continued production of this podcast. Music for this episode was provided by Sean Williams. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art.